Ruff, and this is Conversational Commerce, the podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends by talking shop with the retail dive team, thought leaders, and executives. In today's show, we're talking about jobs. The retail industry employs more people than nearly any other private sector. And as of May of this year, the Labor Department reported that nearly 16 million people worked in retail. But as the industry rapidly evolves and adapts to new consumer behavior and technology, these jobs are changing, and in some cases, going away. As we know, store closures and bankruptcies are occurring at a higher rate in the industry. In fact, retail is leading all other sectors in job cuts, according to data from outplacement firm Challenger Gray and Christmas. So in this episode, we're going to look at how jobs are changing and why those disappearing jobs, as well as many other associate level jobs, are bad jobs. But there's a lot that retailers can do to make them good jobs, not only for the employees, but also for their bottom line. As you'll hear in the show from Zeynep Tan, who is an adjunct associate professor at MIT Sloan and the president of the Good Jobs Institute, creating good jobs is not just a nice to have, but actually a critical foundational piece of having an operational and profitable business. In fact, Toys R Us serves as the perfect cautionary tale, as you'll hear my colleague Ben talk about later on in the episode. All right, let's dive in. I'm Zeynep Ton, and I'm an adjunct associate professor at MIT Sloan and president of Good Jobs Institute. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Zeynep. I appreciate it. My pleasure. As you very well know, retail is one of the many industries in transformation. And what we're talking about today is as the industry continues to evolve and as retailers are making changes, how are and actually should jobs evolve along with it? And I know you have a lot of ideas when it comes to that. You've studied retail operations for more than 15 years, I believe. Is that right? Yep. Now it's close to 20 years. Oh, wow. And in the end, it, you've come away with sort of an uncomfortable truth for the industry. And it's that most retail jobs are actually pretty lousy, to say the least. Um, and they have been for quite a while. So I was hoping you could explain, you know, what you found in your research about the retail industry and, you know, historically um, what some of the associate and lower level jobs have been like. Just to give a very brief introduction to my research, um, my background is in retail supply chains. And I started studying retail supply chains more than, um, well, almost 20 years ago. And one of the things that I and other researchers have found was that uh, retailers had big problems at the store level when they got the right product to the right store at the right time. Once the product was inside the store, there were all sorts of problems that were leading to lost sales, lost productivity, lost profits, and then re-hurting retail supply chain performance. And when we looked into why these problems are happening all the time, one of the major causes was lack of investment in people. So we found that stores that have more employee turnover had more problems. Stores that had um, less training had more problems. Stores that were understaffed just did not have enough people to get all the work done had more problems. And in fact, retailers were operating in what I call a vicious cycle. And the vicious cycle starts with the mentality that people are a cost to be minimized. And then that leads to lack of investment in people. That leads to operational problems. That leads to lower sales and profits. When sales are lower, 
labor budgets shrink, and then this vicious cycle continues. Um, this vicious cycle is bad for customers, this vicious cycle is bad for investors, and it's bad for employees. Um, now, companies that operate in a vicious cycle, um, which is majority of retailers right now, mm -hmm. would either have to change or they will not be relevant going forward. Because companies that operate in a vicious cycle are full of problems at their store level, which means that they cannot deliver to the customer. So what you're saying is operationally, you know, doing this isn't just about the moral good of, you know, making jobs better for workers, but it also fundamentally hits at the operation of the company as well. Oh, absolutely. The only reason that I started working on jobs is because of the operational problems that I've studied and their magnitude and impact on performance. Um, and these problems become even more relevant now because now competition is tougher. Now, omnichannel is on the minds of most retailers I've spoken to. All of these forces means that you have to be first customer first, customer focused, otherwise you won't be relevant. All of these also mean that you better have good operations to be able to use your stores uh, in this omni-channel strategy. So doing this now is more important now than ever is what you're saying? Doing this is more important now than ever. Um, and I think some of these problems were uh, self-inflicted. I mean, retailers, I think, thought that the less they paid their employees, um, the less in advance they provided their schedules, the fewer hours they paid for them um, in terms of schedules to have some flexibility, the better it will be for themselves. But I think now they're finding out that those approaches are actually hurting them a lot more than what's saving them in terms of labor costs. Um, and I think retailers are also realizing that all the other operational problems they've had in terms of introducing more complexity to their environments, all the promotions that are, uh, I call them the drug of retail industry to lure customers in, um, these, are, these are not going to be sustainable uh, going forward. And it seems like, you know, I get to go out to a lot of retail conferences and I've been hearing more and more about investing in the employees, spending more money and resources and training with employees. Um, and as you mentioned, turnover has been a huge problem in the industry for a long time. I think it hovers somewhere around 65%. I know that that is something that retailers have been struggling with and also struggling with, you know, how do you invest in, in associates in a way that makes them better experts in the store, right? And so, as you mentioned, with the influx of e-commerce, it's more important than ever to differentiate. So if you are going to have stores, it's important to have folks in those stores that can help you find what you need um, and do a little bit more than just shelving stores. So I wondered if because of the new consumer expectations, as well as, you know, operational things, that is what brings this more relevant today than before. Absolutely. And making them experts and making them thrive in front of the customer requires a lot more than just hiring the right people and training them well. It also requires a whole change in the operating system of companies. What I find is that the system that they have set up makes it almost impossible for their employees to have expertise in the products or services that they sell and makes it impossible for them to shine in front of the customer. It all, they almost guarantee that their employees will fail in front of the customer. 
So I, I know in, you know, the Better Job Strategy, which is this research that you've put together over a number of years, a part of the Good Jobs Institute, um, there's kind of four main operational choices that go along with investing in the employees. Could you explain what those are? Yeah, the first operational choice is what I call focus and simplify. First, having strategic focus, having a very clear value proposition for the customer, and then doing operational simplification that is consistent with that value proposition. The second one is the combination of standardization and empowerment. So standardizing all the routine processes so that employees can be as efficient as possible um, in serving the customer and not even thinking about some of the things, right? Not having the mental burden of thinking about how am I going to clean the bathrooms or how am I going to shelve this? But at the same time, empowering them to improve those standards and empowering them to solve uh, problems for their customers. The third one is cross-training. So cross-training employees to do both, both customer-facing activities and non-customer-facing activities so that they can have flexibility depending on customer traffic. And also cross-training in a way that ensures mastery. So if you go to a Costco store, you would find people working in one department, let's say the meat department. And the people inside that meat department have mastery. They know everything inside that department, but they're cross-trained to do several activities, customer-facing and non-customer-facing. The fourth operational choice or pillar of the good job strategy is to operate with Slack, which means staffing your stores with more hours of labor than the expected workload. That way, everything gets done. That way, you can create great customer service. That way, people have time to find improvement opportunities and communicate those improvement opportunities. These four operational choices work very nicely together. They together increase the productivity of employees. They together enable employees to be experts on what they're doing. They together enable employees to be motivated. And they together enable continuous improvement and higher performance. So those four choices are necessary um, because once you increase the productivity and contribution of your workforce, now you can pay them well. Now you can create consistent schedules, more predictable schedules. Now you can offer better benefits. But without those four choices, if you don't have, if you haven't designed your operations for high productivity, for high contribution and involvement, then the investment in people is not going to likely pay off. Yeah, I can, I can see that, you know, these are values that, you know, companies are, are trying to or seem like they're trying to implement more and more now. But I can also see if you're talking to a retail executive for the first time that, they might be a little shocked um, or a little bit skeptical and, and see big costs in their eyes as they're hearing about something like this. So what do you think it takes to get retailers um, and executives thinking about this and implementing strategies like this? You are so right when you say that they could be shocked. Um, yeah, I've heard from executives, even those three values being customer focused, thinking about customer first and employees as the most important resource thinking that that approach is a way for you to win, not just a nice to have, is, uh, is, is a different mindset because most companies, most retailers are not customer first. So I think what it takes is first conviction that being customer first and having a motivated, productive workforce, those are essential ingredients of winning. Those are not nice to haves, but that's how we're going to win in the market. And then there needs to be commitment 
to a long-term implementation. Implementing the good job strategy is not a thing that will happen in a few months. It's something that will happen in a few years and it will be a journey that will be continuous. And then the third is the capability and credibility of management. If you don't have a compelling corporate strategy, if you don't have a compelling reason for your customers to come to your stores, um, no amount of good job strategy can save you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether it's this exact strategy or, you know, just adopting a mindset that actually is very employee and customer first. Are you seeing a shift at all in the retail industry toward this kind of a model or embracing these ideas? Look, I think those retailers that don't have a customer first mindset will uh, slowly be more and more irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they don't shift their mindset to customer first, I think others will eat their lunch. And customer first requires motivated, capable, productive workforce. Um, so we might see more companies leaving us, <laughs> others um, with this mindset to be surviving. Yeah, in part, the problem is taking a traditional model and flipping it and bringing in some new mindsets and some new ideas and priorities, right? But I wonder if you're looking at new companies, we're seeing a lot more direct-to-consumer brands and companies that started online and now have just a handful of stores. And you can tell in these stores, the associates are very, very knowledgeable about the product. They're paid higher because of that as well. So I wonder if, you know, that signifies to you any kind of future when it comes to retail jobs and, you know, whether these companies will already be growing up with that as a core principle. I think it's much easier to implement this in a very young company and have them grow up with this principle than to change larger companies. Um, but we have to find a way to change larger companies as well. So I co-founded the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute a year ago, and our mission is to help companies thrive by creating good jobs. And our goal is to make 10 million jobs good jobs. And if we want to reach this goal, we can't do that without engaging the largest employers in the industry from Walmart, Home Depot, Target, um, you, Kroger, you name it, right? So we need to find ways to help these companies transform and at the same time work with the young companies where what they say is almost much easier to build a new house than to make a renovation at an old house. So that's exactly what it is. But we can't, given how many old houses there are around, we can't uh, ignore them. One final thought as we're wrapping up here. Um, what do you look to as the future? This is kind of the goal that you have to get retailers interested in this. When do you think that this could become a reality that all retail jobs would be good jobs? Yeah, I mean, our, we, we want the good job strategy to be known as something that you have to do um, to be able to win, regardless of whether you are a low-cost player or a differentiated player. Uh, regardless of how you create value for your customers, this is the best way to do that. And in an ideal world, all retailers would be implementing the good job strategy. Uh, but again, our goal, if we can get to the 10 million number, that would be a huge win. Achieving excellence is much harder than achieving mediocrity. And I'm not sure that Every single company and every single manager will be able to get to that excellence, but I hope that it will be a lot more common than there is right now. 
That was Zenab Tan, an adjunct associate professor at MIT Sloan and the president of the Good Jobs Institute. She broke down why retailers should create better jobs and how they can go about doing that. But to get a better understanding to the extent that bad jobs played a role in the demise of Toys R Us, I sat down with Retail Dive reporter Ben Unglesby, who's been reporting on the company. Hey, Ben, good to have you back on the show. Good to be back. So you've been doing a lot of work on a story that looks at how retail jobs are affected along the way as a company is kind of starting to deteriorate, um, and then finally when they go through bankruptcy and a liquidation. So can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, so um, ever since Toys R Us filed for Chapter 11, um, I've been talking with folks uh, who had previously worked at the company or were currently there? Uh, as as time goes on, the, the numbers the, I've had I've had sources that went from being current employees to, to former employees. But um, at any rate, pe- people who uh, who worked uh, at the store level or the district level, um, who kind of saw firsthand uh, how that company's uh, operations deteriorated over time. I mean, since the the early two thousands, I had heard stories, uh, you know, last fall about how about the company's decline. Um, I finally wanted to write something detailing all the changes that employees saw. Um, and, and a lot of those changes were changes to their own lives, but they also affected the company's stores and their operations um, and their, their relationships with customers. Yeah. So what did what did they start noticing? Like, what were the first signs that they kind of might have noticed that things were kind of going south? Right. Well, Ever since the the company's founder Charles Lazarus left, uh, you know people saw changes at the company, um, and starting even before the the private equity buyout in two thousand five, uh, that there had been changes to to labor and staffing. Over time, what that meant is the company uh, got rid of its full time staffing to the extent that they could. So you know store store managers would still be full time, and other types of managers would be full time. But for a long time, Toys R Us had um, just store level associates who could work full time and they could get benefits, they could get health insurance, they could get um, stock options. And the company decided to go to uh, what I've heard is a 70% model full f- of part time. So trading their full time workers with benefits for part time workers uh, who had you know irregular scheduling less income and and little to, to no benefits. Uh, it's interesting because this is a lot of what Zenep Tan talks about in her research and talks about how, you know, if you're not investing in employees in those ways and you're not allowing them to succeed because of erratic scheduling and poor pay, um, not giving them a good, clear reason to want to be an engaged employee, um, that it can really hurt operations. Right. Um, so like, how else did you see that playing out in terms of the stores deteriorating as well? I mean, a lot of people have told me there's a lot of attrition and they lost a lot of knowledgeable employees. In return, they had part-timers who, you know, even if they you know, liked Toys R Us and wanted to be there, they couldn't attract someone who was fully committed to the store because you weren't offering them a full time. You couldn't make it a career for them. For the people that remained, people have said that the workloads increased to a point where they couldn't even do them. This is something that happened over time, um, you know, from the early 2000s on till to, you know, till the bankruptcy. The amount of hours that the that the home office would allot for, for a certain operational task became just a joke. They would say, you know, do it do it in this amount of time and everyone knew you couldn't do it in that yeah it just time. wasn't possible yeah it just wasn't possible 
Um, so they didn't have, you know, there wasn't a, a rational, realistic picture of how to spend your labor hours. Um, and so what very often um, got the, you know, got short shrift was helping customers on the floor because you're trying to, you know, do all these other operational tasks, managing your inventory, managing your signage, you know, all, all this stuff. Um, and you have fewer employees on, on the floor to help customers when, when they need it. Yeah, so you've done a lot of reporting about why Toys R Us uh, ended up liquidating, right? And there's right. so many things that go into that. Private equity plays a role, debt plays a big role. So, I mean, to what extent do you think not investing employees and the operational costs played into the you know destruction of the business? Right. Well, I think I think they're all interrelated too. You know, when you have large interest obligation because there's a five billion dollar leveraged buyout. Uh, that's money that you're not putting into your stores. It's not money that you're not paying your employees. So you know you cut your staffing. That you know plays and you start to lose customers to to online to you know if if someone comes to your store and they can't find help with what they want. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to another store. They're going to go online. I mean, yeah. I mean, and that that's the big thing too, right? Is like now being able to differentiate with stores is a big way to compete against Amazon and other online competitors. So if you don't have a knowledgeable workforce that can explain, you know, why their products, what they can find, where they can find it, whatever, they'll just go online. Right. So a couple of people I've talked with have compared the the labor model that Toys R Us moved to in the in the early 2000s to what Circuit City did, where um, over time they gradually got rid of their, um, you know, full-time uh, expert sales staff and, and repli- replace them with less knowledgeable part-timers. Circuit City, like Toys R Us, you know, it su- suffered a similar fate. And again, it's, you know, it's hard to isolate one factor or another. In the case of Toys R Us, employees I talked with, um, they could draw a direct line from what happened to store staffing and what happened to labor hours and what happened to you know their ability to, to provide customer service. One source told me that the, the company's payroll in, in 2016 was uh, about 75% less than what it was in the early 2000s. Um, and they would staff stores with you know three people, um, closed stores with three people. And so if, if you're closing a store at night, you have one person on the register, you have one person in the back counting cash, and you have one person in the floor on the floor. And you're talking about a 40,000 square foot store. So it made it really easy for customers to steal. And, and so what I've heard is that in, uh, for 20, when they took physical inventory for 2016, there was a huge shortage in their inventory. Never mind just you know, being able to stock all the products, but you know, seeing it actually going away because you're not able to monitor the store correctly. Right, right, yeah. Toy, Toys R Us has a, <laughs> had a hard enough time with sales losses. So on right. top of that, they had a big shrink problem, which, I mean, it would be hard to argue that a massive, uh, you know, a massive staff cut didn't affect that. So what do you think the takeaway is for other retailers that, you know, might also be, you know, not where Toys R Us is now, but, you know, similarly struggling. And I think a lot of them look at labor as a big cost to be minimized. And I think, you know, what we're hearing from Zenup and other researchers is that, you know, there might be initial costs up front, but in the long term, it actually is probably more beneficial for the business to invest in better jobs. Um, what, what do you think is the takeaway for others? Right. Well, yeah, I, I think you can take a look around at the retail world and and you can see uh, you can see a lot of confirmation of what uh, Zena, um, you know what she researches and what, what she's found out there 
Um, I mean, look at Costco is doing really well. You look at uh, Nordstrom is doing really well. And, um, you know, retailers that have a strong service model are, are performing well where, um, you know, you you look at JCPenney and, and Sears, um, they've, uh, along with closing store, stores, they've reduced staff dramatically. Um, and they're having problems keeping customers. Um, and you can, you can see it in their comps. You can see it in, in their sales. Um, so it's, and it's hard. I mean, if you're already, if you're already, um, suffering from financial issues, labor is an, is an easy place to cut. Um, but at the same time, it's easy to create a death spiral. By, yeah. I mean, you're just giving your, your customers fewer reasons to come to your store. Right. I mean, it's all of these things, as you said, are completely interconnected. So if you're trying to differentiate with your store experience, you better have it staffed and you better be treating those employees in a way that, you know, helps them be engaged with customers too. Right. right. Until you have fully knowledgeable robots that can rove <laughs> your aisles and that people respond to positively. Yeah. So, we'll wait for the day when that comes. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be running for the exit. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you, I mean, I, I worked in retail uh, for years and years uh, before I became a journalist. List. Um, I, I worked at Blockbuster, which there's another company that that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But um, so so maybe maybe it's not the best example. <laughs> but you know, I I could see you know from from working in the store day in day out um, that you know the human connections we had with people mattered. We had a lot of very regular customers, and we knew them by name. We knew what they liked. We probably knew way more about their personal lives than we needed to. Um, and, and they are sometimes, but, but we just, you know, it was almost like friends. I mean, it was almost like a neighborhood bar. It was good for you. It was good for the customers, but ultimately it was good for the brand, right? Because they associated the relationship that they had with you with the company and wanting to, right. go, to go back. Like had they gone to a different city, they probably still would have gone to a blockbuster. Right. And they, and they sought out our expertise and, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of that's been replaced with online reviews and Rotten Tomatoes, but it's still, it's still different when it comes out of a human's mouth and, yeah. and someone you have a connection with. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversational Commerce. For all the latest updates on industry news, analysis, and trends, subscribe to our free daily newsletter at retaildive.com. And stay tuned for more episodes. Until next time, I'm Corinne Ruff, and this was Conversational Commerce.